It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today I'm going to ask where music comes from, at least the music of composer Elena Katz-Chernin. She's been writing music since she was a child in the Soviet Union. She later moved to Australia with her family when she was a teenager. She composes for orchestras and for smaller ensembles. She's written operas and scores for ballets. Her music has been used in films and even TV commercials. She's twice been a featured composer at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, which is where I met her. And for those of you who heard my interview last year with Elena during the festival, well, the one we're about to play is different. It's never been aired before, and this time around we went a lot deeper into her creative process and the very personal story behind some of her compositions, including a real tour de force that we're going to play at the end of the show called Village Idiot. Elena has uh, produced a really wide body of work in styles ranging from modernism to ragtime to tango. And she's also a fan of musical minimalism, building up pieces from the layering of simple elements, as in the composition we're listening to right now. It's called Purple Prelude. Purple Prelude has as a starting point just three notes and just moves around those three notes. I mean, it's really simple, but there's so much possible with that. I mean, it's, it's exciting. When did you start taking that approach of minimizing things? Uh, I think it's when I was maybe using too much material and I thought that doesn't lead me anywhere. Interesting. So I need to give myself rules to start with because rules are very helpful. You know, if you have a rule, you can break it especially if, if it's you yourself giving that rule. And maybe because I always love how a little cell can grow into something big. You know, it's like person, you know, I, I guess I'm very much a kind of a human composer. I like stories about people, every kind of little, even domestic story, you know, interests me. Uh, and that's why maybe I like really smallest cells possible. And then it's like the baby grows up. <laughs> it's, um, it's just, because I think if I start big, I have nowhere to go, you know? Well, you know, you said um, stories interest you, and, and absolutely listening to your music, I make up stories. I mean, I see images. In this piece, Purple Prelude, I see someone rushing somewhere, you know, some, some urgent business going on. This is really interesting because the piece is quite slow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This is interesting. But the urgency of that theme that comes up again and again, that motive... It's more about suspense and yeah, also some drama. Exactly. At one point, it gets very dramatic and you think something really happened uh, and you almost kind of want to cry because something horrible happened and you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So it, it's like a little film in itself and it actually has been used for little films here and there quite a few times actually. I love it when people imagine something, when they listen to my, my pieces. That's why I don't try to give too many images in the descriptions because that limits the imagery. So you give a, a deliberately um, nebulous name so that we can make up our own stories. Well, exactly. It gives much more scope for 
imagination to run wild. You know, music doesn't have to tell anything. It doesn't have to describe anything. I'm not a descriptive composer. I'm not landscape composer. Some people, you know, can compose about l the, the bush, the sea. Mm -hmm. I uh -huh. never like to describe something itself. Uh -huh. Let's listen to another piece again from this same recording called uh, Clocks. That's the name of the CD. This is Russian Rag, and I guess you've, you've done several versions of this piece. It's become kind of famous in Australia. I was asked by our Australian ABC um, radio station um, producer to write a piece for a particular CD of rec times. And I had never written rec times before. And I thought, hmm, interesting, let's research, you know. So I listened to a few rec times of that time by Albright um, and by William Balcom, who I had met recently, actually. So when you say of that time, you mean contemporary right? Contemporary, time. exactly. Not exactly. Scott Joplin. No, or, no, okay. because I wasn't so interested in the jaunty, fast kind of ragtime. Uh -huh. I was interested very much in hearing those melancholic, nostalgic-sounding, sad almost rags. You know, they speak more to my sentimental heart. <laughs> um, well, you put your, your, your <laughs> finger on it uh, from this listener's perspective. Melancholy for sure. Again, I can't keep from imagining a person or a story. And this person is looking back and has some serious regrets about something. And, and what I imagine, of course, is just a person sitting in a cafe and drinking a cup of coffee and just watching the world pass uh -huh. by, you know, maybe reading a paper. But that's melancholy because <laughs> this person is missing something. Yes, persons by, <laughs> is he a lonely person? A although, lonely person, Although yes. it could be two people sitting at the table, but they're each in their own world and right. they're not communicating. Uh -huh. That's another way of looking at it. See, I imagine little scenes. It's not just melancholy. There's a little bit of humor or acceptance in this as well, don't you think? It's not just sad music. Oh, no. I, yeah. I Actually, I don't believe in very sad music because uh -huh. that's, again, something against my nature. It's ultimately quite optimistic. Mm -hmm. And people always said when they listen to this piece, especially with that program on the, on the uh, radio, which it became famous for, in Australia, they said it lifted them up. It mm -hmm. gave them this really great mm -hmm. feeling mm -hmm. and they got revived after the wo a hard day's work or they really loved it because, and humor is part of my work a lot anyway. Mm. I love giving some kind of kick, like a pizzicata with a glissando afterwards, you know, or a little funny sound, you know, from trombone, you know, I, I love that. Thank you. 
I, I find it so interesting that stories aren't the sources of your composition. You're not imagining a, a storyline when you're, you're making up the sounds. But upon hearing them, you and others immediately sense a narrative of some kind, or an image, as you say, a scene. Uh, but that's after the fact for you. It would be, I think, wrong to think a story when I write a piece, mm. because that would actually make a piece much more boring, I think. Oh, if, would if you it? put too much meaning into it, yes. I ah. think, I think what, what works for me is emotion. When emotion triggers a piece, ultimately it's the piece itself that develops, and it has its own momentum. And I don't know up front what it's going to be. You have a very strong background as a trained musician and composer. You studied um, at the famous academy in Moscow. Gnesin, is that how it's yes. pronounced? Um, so you have that traditional training. And yet, listening to your work, it never sounds academic. Well, you studied to give you the tools in the background and the, you know, automatic kind of self-editing devices so you know uh, very quickly what's right, what's wrong. You know, you don't have to think about the harmony because you've learned all that. Right. Um, so that, that training is just like a backbone of everything I do. But I guess even without that training, I could probably could compose, but maybe differently. I don't know, because in the end, it, you still have to develop your own language. So the training gave you the materials, but it doesn't seem to have inhibited you. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to have scared you off from composing contemporary, eclectic, very, and, and I know this word sometimes is treated with disdain in classical music circles, but I'm going to use it anyway, accessible music, music that people can relate to really easily. And I'm I'm very pleased about it. And, you know, for a while I did worry about that accessibility. Oh, and yeah. I, um, for a little bit, you know, when I was younger and I just thought, oh, they will hate it because it's not difficult enough. Right, um, right. Some people may call it irrelevant mm -hmm. because it doesn't change the world. <laughs> But do I want to change the world with my music? I mean, can I change the world? That's a little bit arrogant, you know, to say right. I am so big that I will change the world. I can't say that. I'm not that big, you know. I'm just a little person writing music as I like it. So I just think, you know, in the end, a lot of people write this relevant music, which, which is maybe for them more relevant and maybe for others as well. For critics, definitely. Uh, depends in which country, though. Mm. Uh, you know, some countries are more tolerant. I think here people are much more tolerant. In Australia, people are tolerant. As long as it's good, they don't really care what style it is. I think in Europe, it's still very modernistic approach. A to bit stodgy. Eh? Well, I don't know, it's but it's funny still, it's too. Is you, modernism itself was this radical departure. It outraged people in its time, and now there's a new orthodoxy, right? Well, in some ways, yeah. And I, I used, I fell right into that same path. I was very interested in experimental music, very interested in mon modernism. I wrote very dissonant pieces, but I always put a little bit of, as you said, humor, but also a little bit of kind of spice and occasional chord in them. And um, some of the pieces on the clock CD, as a matter of fact, are from that stage still. They're a little experimental, but not completely uh, unapproachable. Right, right. But they're more heavy duty and they're a bit more aggressive and I used to write a little bit rougher music and louder and, you know, I used to write really loud music. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so interested in, you know, maybe because, you know, I want to actually save my ears. Right. <laughs> I don't know. 
you know, one thing that impresses me about your music and your, your attitude toward it is you don't seem scared off to, to try anything. I mean, you seem to be very much in touch with who you are, and, and that feels sufficient for you. I feel that, you know, music is ultimately a re- reflection on your personality. So um, it's very interesting when I hear people's music. I always imagine what the composer is like, you know. Um, are they like their pieces? Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're actually not, you know, which is really surprising. Sometimes people write really aggressive music and the person is so modest and shy mm. and, and soft. <laughs> and you think, where does that come from? You know, you kind of, it's very, it's very interesting. But I guess um, with me, it's a little bit like a diary. You know, every day it's a, I feel like this person. And that's why I write every day because mm. it reflects me who I am today, you know, and mm. tomorrow. Every day I'm different. Whatever happens in your life, and I've had things happen, ah. you know, they go all into my pieces. And you said you don't like purely sad music. Is that because you yourself don't experience pure, you know, despair? I have experienced pure despair. I had a very, well, I still have a very sick child. So that's oh. a very mm. overwhelming, burdening, it's something that you never forget. It's like every day with me. I always think about it. Oh. I've always... Um, being influenced by it because it's part of my life. But I try not to put that into my music because why should the world experience my sadness as their sadness? You know, I, I don't want to put it on pawn the listener to suffer with me. That's not how I am. You see, I don't oh, like could, that. Could I, could I argue with you a little bit on that? <laughs> okay. I mean, you have put your personality in your work and people in response, I think it's fair to say, have been delighted with it. I've been moved by it, have been touched by it, have felt a, a sense of connection. So why not put even that part of you that's that's hurting oh i have i have i have oh, yeah. but i have done it differently i have done it in a healing way i see. Um, i wrote a piece called get well rag So beautiful player, Ian. Mm. Ian Munro is amazing. He's a composer as well. He is um, stunning. He can sight read anything. So I remember after the Russian rag, he came over once and I said, I've just writing some more rags and I think it will be for you. And he just sat down and played them. And what's wonderful about his playing, he actually adds notes. He actually does things with the rags that are not necessarily there, you know, like he adds a little grace note, he'll add a peggio that's not there, he adds some octaves. And I just love that, he, he makes it his own. That's what I love. Again, that speaks to your open-mindedness, which is another um, phrase I, I had in mind when I thought of you and your music. Um, 
You're not one of those strict composers who says, stick to my score, do not change a note. <laughs> no, I can't do that because I think music is a living, a living creature. It's um, so much more exciting when every performer plays it differently. Why should it always be the same? Then you might as well just have one recording and then it's boring. Of course, it has to be in the right taste, you know, and I trust him. So I wouldn't trust every, every pianist, you know, or every musician, but I trust him because I know him. So this is Get Well Rag, and this was something you wrote for your son who, who was and, and still is ill? He is very ill. Uh, it's a sad, sad story. Um, but, you know, you get stronger through that. When my son got sick, I thought, I can't really write anymore. I don't know if I want to compose anymore, you know. And I thought, you know, I, ca I can just stop or I can push myself, you know, to grow from this and use that, you know, um, turmoil in my soul. So, so I felt it's better to be strong and um, to continue living. Otherwise, I would just go down with my son. And I thought, well, that's not good for him either. Mm. So I started writing pieces. In some ways, that was a turning point for me to start writing tonally. Mm. Because before, I was still merging the two styles, you know, the modernism and tonal. And I occasionally wrote rags as my hobby. But then, when he got sick, I thought, you know, I can now only write pieces that he would like to listen to what would be nice for him oh. calm him down somehow i thought it would be just a phase but it stayed with me and since then i just gave myself the freedom to do that and also through this illness things like peer or critics criticizing my new style didn't matter anymore because what mattered was my son that's really interesting so the thing i was talking about earlier your willingness to to create material that's that's very again accessible very very available to ordinary listeners um this was in part a response to yeah, reaching mean, someone yeah, well it's 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 important to not lose contact with the real world you yeah, know that's yeah. maybe if i didn't have children i would be more remote and i would just be the artist and just give myself into the music but because I had three children, I have three sons, um, I had to basically care for these creatures, <laughs> for these little people. Um, and then, of course, when my son got, my middle son got sick, I thought um, I better try and push myself. You know, I really had to push myself because I could have just sat at home and just cried and cried and cried. Uh, all the time. I cried all the time. I think I cried for three months. It was like really grieving process to kind of lose a child that you've got and have a new child. You know, you have a new person. And I used to not talk about it because I used to protect my son. I did. I tried not to. But then I went f and I became more active in what he has. And I spoke about it and I went to events and um, I did pieces for particular events to do with what you know with his illness and and wrote pieces for that and it was actually very good can you tell us what it is a schizophrenia oh mm. and um it's um it's a tough illness it, oh, it, yeah. it's because it's not it's not black and white everybody has a different kind and you know some people are treatable he's not very treatable mm. uh, because he was very young when he was 14 when he got sick 
And you constantly have guilt as well. You know, you you, you constantly think if I write music and it's successful, maybe success will mean he will get more sick. You know, you start playing these little games in your head, which is so destructive. You know, you have to constantly work against that because it's very bad. And it is it it is, you know, it's a neurological disease that that often does come on in in the teen years. It's obviously not your fault at all. Well, thank you. But, <laughs> but you know, and the brain, of course, is fluid yeah, and exactly. it's still being developed. And, of course, he stayed, right. He kind of stayed a child. Like, yeah. um, he still thinks he's a child. He's now 27, but he thinks he stayed in that time kind of frozen. Uh-huh. Uh, he's very sweet and very gentle person. So uh-huh. that's what speaks for him. And he's lovely. He played violin. He played piano. It, he loves music, loves music. So that's why I kind of thought if I write pieces that he likes to hear, that will make both both of us happier, you know. Mm-hmm. And it did, you know, and people feel that, I think. You, you know, something you said earlier um, about not writing to change the world, but aiming for something more intimate and, and personal um, reminded me, in a way, of a favorite song of mine. It's an old one. I wonder if you'll recognize this. Longtemps, longtemps, longtemps Après que les poètes ont disparu Leurs chansons courent encore dans les rues La foule les chante un peu distraite En ignorant le nom de l'auteur Sans savoir pour qui leur Something about the heart. Well, it's um, that's Charles Trenet, um, the late Charles Trenet, the, the French uh, singer-songwriter. It's called the soul of poets, meaning the soul of songwriters. And it's, it says, <laughs> long after songwriters are gone, their, their songs are still heard in the street. Um, the crowd moves along a little distracted, whistling their tunes, not knowing who the songwriter was writing their song for, what it was about. But the nice. song lives on, on the lips of ordinary people, rich people, even uh, vagabonds, he says. <laughs> and that is, to me, the greatest tribute to a songwriter I can imagine. It's amazing. I mean, that's beautiful. And uh, yeah, uh, that's the ultimate. I mean, it's the ultimate to have a tune being whistled or sung by mm-hmm. people. That's, a, that's happened with Eliza Aria in the UK. I was UK. thinking of it's Eliza funny. Aria. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a perfect fun. time for us to play Eliza Aria. <laughs> let's, let's, let's play. That melody has been um, in my head ever since I first heard it. 
I implore you. No, I'm sorry. no. Unlike those uh, those earworms that get stuck in the head and you want to get rid of, this one is welcome. It's it's a welcome <laughs> passenger thank, thank in my you. brain. Thank you. Um, and this is pro- this may be your best known tune popularly, right? Well, in the UK for sure, and now a little now more in Australia because of the uh, new role, new function as a theme for that show uh, called Late Night Live. Um, it's it's a very easy tune to remember somehow mm-hmm. because it's not really even a tune. It's just a triads being sung. I mean, how weird is that? <laughs> you mean by triads, you mean three-note chords? Three-note chords, yeah. basically. And then, you know, you just miss a note. You know, you have right. three notes and uh, between them you have um, a note. And that's basically the triad um, over harmony. Uh, so basically she sings harmonies. It's not a real melody, mm-hmm. which is very possibly unusual for a normal kind of song. And no words. No words. That's very lucky. Mm-hmm. Had it had words, would it, it would not have been used as a commercial music. Mm-hmm. And, and and it was. I mean, now it was originally composed for a ballet. Yes, it, it and it was for a ballet called Wild Swans, based on Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, and it introduced Eliza, the princess, who goes on a quest to free her brothers from the spell uh, of being turned into wild swans by the wicked witch, was which was her stepmother. Um, the queen. Eliza had this beautiful, imaginative, naive, innocent soul. And so I just had to represent that character on stage. I wrote this piece for a singer, for a soprano, because we had a soprano in the orchestra. Actually, she was actually originally thought to be on, in orchestra, but then we made her into a role and she became a good fairy in the whole piece. So she wandered around on stage singing yes. while the dancers danced. Yes, and it was very wonderful. We had a wonderful singer, <laughs> really beautiful. And, well, the whole ballet was made into a suite by me a couple of years later and recorded for the ABC Classics. And that's how the track became a track on the CD, which one could use, you know. So once it got to be used by the Lloyds Bank in the UK... It was used in a, a television advertising exactly. commercial but also in film for Lloyds Bank. And film and in radio as well. It became a ringtone, even. It became a ringtone, <laughs> well, even. What isn't, what isn't a ringtone? <laughs> <laughs> now, see, I, I'm very open-minded, but I'm opposed to taking really good tunes and turning them into ringtones because I think it ruins them to have them become this kind of alarm signal that you're supposed to respond to. But but that, um, I'm going to call it a song, uh, that composition, that song, Eliza Aria, um, is about as accessible as music can get. I mean, a, a child could could sing it, um, although you told me that this is actually rather difficult to perform for the soprano. It is quite hard, but people, I've heard now, people... Now why is that? Well, because it's very hard to pitch three notes in a row like this. It's a bit like Queen of the Night, um in Magic Flute, it's mm-hmm. very hard to sing triads because you Is have it? to, you know, it's much easier to pitch notes which are next to each other. It's also, you know, instruments like trumpets um, or horns, you know, or even cello when you play in a high register, it's easier to pitch when you lead up to them mm-hmm. rather than you just have to hit the note. Mm-hmm, right. So right. when you just That's have true. to sit on the note and then you have to sit on another note, yeah. which is again not right next I to see, it. I see, because you're jumping. You're jumping. And you so your voice, perfectly. Yeah, exactly. So your voice ah. is not quite, it's like having letters in your, on your, in your throat. You have letters. I'm thinking it's like jumping from stone to stone, crossing yeah. a river. Yeah, well, it's know? like steps. You have yeah, to yeah, land yeah. perfectly. Yeah, and it's actually very, very hard. And there's, mm-hmm. it's constantly jumping. This whole 
piece is jump after jump after jump. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so hard because you have to be, you have to have a fantastic hearing, fantastic pitch. Um, and you have uh, perfect pitch. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Has that been a gift as a composer? It's a gift and a curse. Uh-huh. It's a gift definitely as a composer. It's, uh, without it, it's, I don't know. It's very hard. I know composers who don't have it and um, it's harder, I think, for them. But they learn to have a relatively perfect pitch. You can develop it, but it's much easier, of course, if you're born with it, which is amazing because you're born with it and there's nothing you do for it. So I kind of always think of it, um, you know, I've been chosen to have the gift by someone. So the whole life of mine then becomes earning that gift because other people don't have it and they would love to have it. So you kind of feel responsibility. It's Mm. very much responsibility. Mm. So, but that's not why it's a curse because I think that's wonderful. What's a curse is that I can't relax when I listen to music. Uh. I hear every note. It's like constantly having an analytical mind in your brain saying, oh, I hear C, I hear F sharp, I have this. The whole time I hear everything. So I hear wrong notes, of course. And, and you hear everything that's out of tune, which a lot of us don't notice. We notice relative pitches, and they sound fine as long as they're in relative relation mm. to each other. They don't have to be perfect. No, but I also don't have to be perfect because oh, yeah? I'm quite patient because I've learned. You know, uh-huh. I worked in theaters, and I worked with lots of out-of-tune even instruments, you know, uh-huh. so that's normal. It's okay. I've I've learned to be patient and tolerant for <laughs> this, but, but it still doesn't stop me from hearing every pitch when I listen to something. So I try not to listen to too many concerts because I can't. It gives me overburdening head, you know. My oh, head just, interesting. it's just too difficult and to process because there's so much and it's just constant. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, there, there are people with a, who are cursed, actually, with perfect memories, uh, or not perfect, but but very capacious memories, so that even trivia sticks in their head. And that actually is not a good thing. No. Getting rid of or ignoring certain things is yeah. is, is actually something we need. Well, exactly, because it's constantly uh-huh. in your way. You uh-huh. know, it really is in your way. And sometimes I would just like to relax and just listen to a piece of music without thinking, oh, they're playing F sharp or you know, G sharp or, or whatever they do. It's just... It's like a disorder, you know, that you, but it's a good disorder. Of course, you know, I like it. I like it. And I, you know, I wouldn't want to not have it because uh-huh. it certainly helps me, you know, just to read a score without, if I don't have a piano, mm-hmm. I, I don't have to have it. Then I can read something and I can pick the wrong notes quickly, you know, and I can just hear it inside my head. But I can also hear the musicians immediately when they play a wrong note. I can hear it. Have any of your teachers from, from your early days in Russia, before you moved to Australia, Kept up with your career? Have you been in touch with any of them? Um, no, uh, I'm kind of curious what they w- what they would think of their former student Elena. Yeah, now. I wonder. Also, my former piano teacher, I think, is still alive. I must, mm. must be very. You have know, you been on. back? Um, you no, must have. Never, no, never, 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 you never. L- you left um, Russia in 1975, and you've never been back. Never been back. I would have thought you'd, you'd have gotten invitations back, maybe. Never. No. Never. But once the old music school turned 100, about three years ago or four years ago, Sobinov was the name of the school, if if I'm right. Oh, this was the school before you went to Gnesin Academy. Exactly. Uh-huh. That was in my music school in uh-huh. the in the place where I grew up, Yaroslavl, which uh-huh. is um, not Moscow, uh, which is about four hours by train from Moscow, uh-huh. 360 kilometers. Yaroslavl. It's, uh, Yaroslavl. It's on the Volga River. It had the first ever theater in Russia. And it was once a capital when Moscow burned down. So it's a special place. Mm-hmm. had lots and lots of churches with golden couples and... Um, it's very beautiful, ancient city. They, the film War and Peace was 
partly the Russian uh, f- uh, film was partly filmed in that city, mm. and also Alexander Nevsky mm, by was yeah yeah exactly that was also. Uh, filmed in in Yaroslav, and that's got a score by Prokofiev. Exactly. Yeah. So I have connection to all mm-hmm. that, and that sort of ancient history, or not ancient history, but the, the Russian history. It's very interesting, very brutal. Some of it. Oh yeah. Um, but um, that school was amazing. That where I studied, there was I had the best teachers. It was the best music school in that town. Uh, it was named after the famous tenor Sobinov, and. They, this school turned 100, and so they found me somehow. Some people found me on the net. They wrote to me, and they said, we would like to do a concert, and we would like to play a piece of yours. And so they played a piece of mine. I sent them something, and it was really nice. And they said, oh, do you remember that person? He played with you four hands when you were eight or something. Mm. It was kind of nice. Mm. Um, so it, was, it brought memories back. And then they told me that my, t- my p- old piano teacher is still alive, and, and she was wonderful. She was just an amazing teacher. You started composing as a child, and I guess you always had uh, composition in mind, right? I mean, you weren't initially going to be a concert pianist and then somehow took a turn to composition. You always wanted to be a composer. I definitely much preferred composing to playing piano. I never liked to practice. I was a sight reader. (laughs) And actually, my very, very first teacher didn't teach me how to use my hands. So I had a horrible technique, you know. I was tired after 10 minutes. You know, I would play something and I would just not be able to because I was so tight and I was playing like, I don't know, like somebody who has this, I don't know, something in their fists and they don't want to let go. (laughs) Anyway, um, by the time I got to be 10, which was already after I started composing, which was about when I was seven or eight, um, I got this wonderful teacher, Nadezhda Kolomzina, and she made me for one year just play scales completely she said no more moonlight sonata no more anything that you kind of want to jump i used to want to jump ahead and play list and play this and you know she said no 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 and so she just started completely undoing my whole hand position relaxing my hands relaxing my shoulders and i had to stand up and down and press the note and then stand up while I'm playing a note and then sit down again and feel where the relaxation sets in and where the heaviness of the hand goes into the finger. It's a very big skill. You know, you've got to actually have the technique before you start. You know, it's like you have to walk before you can run. But but so many dues to pay to not be playing real pieces and getting the joy of that, but just to sit there doing exercises I over hated and over it. again. <laughs> oh, I hated it. But she was a wonderful teacher and she was so kind as well. So she uh-huh. wasn't um, making me cry or anything. So she just said, look, we've got to get rid of this problem. And it took a year mm-hmm. for me. And then I remember it was like, like a celebration when I could suddenly play real pieces mm. and suddenly I could play them and not get tired. And, you know, she's the reason I can sit all day at the piano, play all day, improvise, you know, work through my compositions. When you then um, started studying composition in Russia in the 70s, maybe even the late 60s, um, were there many women composers to look up to, or did that matter to you at all, the fact that um, there weren't? Well, in Russia, the girls were brought up to be equal to men. Uh-huh, yeah, So uh-huh. we were you know, brought up not to be housewives. There was absolutely equality, so-called equality. Of course, in the end, the mother of the children was looking after children and working at the same <laughs> time, because the men were still quite 
quite set in those roles that the men kind of get served, mm-hmm. you know? It was still, not in every family, of course, but, you know, in more educated families that wasn't the case, but sometimes that was the case. So that was actually quite tough. A woman was expected to work anyway. Otherwise, in, 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 I remember the, it was in, in Russia, Soviet Union at the time, it was said, if, if you don't work, you're a parasite to the society. So you kind of were forced to work, you know? So for us, it didn't quite matter if we composed. I never felt special to, for being a girl and uh-huh. composed because there were others. Were there any? F- there were no famous women composers at that time, were there? There were some. They were writing songs. Uh-huh. They were quite famous. And there were a few that were writing concert music, but not many. That's just, we don't mm-hmm. know why. And sometimes maybe because they have families and it was hard. Mm-hmm. Maybe because composing is always hard. You know, for men and women, I was find it's hard for everybody to stick it out you know it's actually tougher than one thinks one can write a piece two pieces three pieces but but doing piece after piece after piece also making them long you know um takes kind of uh stamina <laughs> you oh, know sure and and just you know guts and and you've got to, and also you've got to stick with your failures as well if you make a flop and then can still have to continue you know <laughs> it reminds me of a question i wanted to ask you is is there any music you've composed that you really don't like oh lots lots <laughs> there's lots and there were pieces that i i remember there was one piece i wanted to withdraw and i talked we, to my we should play something you don't like <laughs> oh oh Oh, okay. Hmm. That would be a first for me. I've talked to a lot of musicians <laughs> and, and uh, composers, but I've never uh, asked them to play something they detest. Let me think. Um, yes, I know what it is. I know what it is. There is a piece on the same CD that I think I wrote too fast. You've been looking at a, a CD of yours called Chamber of Horrors, uh, and, and I've, I've asked you to uh, <laughs> I've asked you to find something that maybe you don't like so much anymore. This is from uh, the '90s, this CD. Because that's because when I look back, I think, oh, why did I write that? Like because I don't write like this anymore today. When people want to perform it, I say, why? <laughs> you know, instead of like composers should be happy when people get mm-hmm. you know people perform your pieces, and I say, why did you choose that piece? It's so old. I don't write like this anymore. It's not <laughs> me anymore, you know. But that's the thing. Once you create them, they no longer belong to you. Once I know. we've heard them, they're ours too. But the funny story is like I remember, I remember once wanting to withdraw a piece. Um, and I remember talking to my publishers and they said, you know, the minute you want to withdraw a piece, everybody wants to play it. <laughs> and it's just, it's just the way the universe works. And, and, and it's true. So you have, you have one here that if you had the choice again, you might... Either do it differently or... Or just not do it at all. Not do it. So let's hear it. It's just so weird. stupid I think this is really stupid <laughs> this is uh, from the track called Velvet Revolution uh, this is uh, the fourth movement you think it's really stupid it's just so, sort of somebody jumping through hoops you know it's quite a, feels a little empty to me 
it's funny because I wouldn't have said this to you until you you prompted me, but I say, yeah, this sounds a little cliched for your work, which I don't, I would not normally think of that word in yeah, relation but because, to your work. Exactly. And, it, and it, it's just not how I write today. I must say I wrote it in a fast way. I wrote it very fastly. I remember I was working on the project and I had to write this piece and I was in, not in the country. I was not at home and I had to send faxes. It was very stressful. And I, I, can he, I can hear it in the piece, you know, I can hear that, like this particular movement. I just don't feel the harmonic language is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I could do much more interesting stuff mm-hmm. today, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the worlds are so open and, and I could find so much more in it. And by the way, apologies to, uh, to any listeners who love that particular movement of that particular <laughs> piece. No offense intended. Um, do, are you fond uh, at, at this point of uh, Village Idiot? Absolutely fond of Village Idiot. Village Idiot is one of my favorite pieces. It's also written about um, mental illness, actually. Oh. And it's um, in response to this poet who's, who has schizophrenia. And um, he wrote a poem about himself. Like, he feels like a village idiot in the normal kind of world. Oh, wow. And he feels so different. And so it was a very n- interesting poem. And I thought of writing that piece after that. I, I really like it, too. So I'm going to play some of it right now. So we're hearing this opening with these patterns, and we're hearing layers added to the patterns. Yeah, we hear the bass. Just heard the bass yeah. come in. And, and then we've we got percussion. Wood blocks. Wood blocks. Am I hearing accordion? And now you hear brass. You hear brass. horn. And you hear uh, accordion as well, and harpsichord keyboard with a harpsichord sound. Okay, now (laughs) electric guitar. And electric guitar for me represented the role of the village idiot throughout the piece. It came in always on top of things and kind of weaved in and out. Our guitarist loved being that village idiot. He said, I'm your village idiot. It's, it was an ensemble called Present Music in oh. Milwaukee. It was an US premiere. Electronic tone. What's that? What does that sound? Well, the harpsichord, basically. Oh, yes. that, that's because it is electronic, and that's, oh, that's yes. the only two electronic things: are the, the electric guitar and the harpsichord sound. Mm-hmm. 
Well, this is a, a good example of what people call minimalism. Um, they'll think of Philip Glass when I mention that term. And there's a lot in common with his music, this building up of patterns, these yes, contrapuntal yes. and polyrhythmic patterns, adding up to something really exciting. I, well, I love working like this because it gives you a base. You have a base on which you can build and it leads you to the next and also you can move between harmonies, which is going to happen in a minute. Um, and you can repeat something but always a little differently and add another instrument because it's wonderful. Like here, suddenly you minimize everything. So from the big you go to small and you have this metal plates or break drums or whatever that in this case he's, uh, the percussionist plays with the clovers on, on the vibraphone. Mm. And I love glissandos again, you know, mm. those things like strings. And we have trumpet play, like soaring melodies. And there's always this sort of a waiting pattern sometimes like this one and sort of um, moves from one chord to the next so it's about harmony mm -hmm. but also uh, violin plays a big role here so there are passages where it relaxes and then the tension mm -hmm. builds again exactly and yeah. then it sort of picks up and then and then it, you think it's going somewhere, but then it goes somewhere back again. So you'd never quite know. So now we added a percussion, kind of a cymbal. There will come a moment where we say, all right, enough already. And then it changes mm -hmm. <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Great instrumentation. Thank you. And just also dropping out instruments. That's important. Mm Definitely a storytelling quality to this one, too, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I hope it's a good thing. Oh, yeah, I know. There's this, this feeling of, of, of something being propelled forward, rushing forward, headed towards some fate. I'm not sure what it is. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> had a bit of accordion melody, kind of a little dance. So there's a bit of a dance Remind going on. Remind me of yeah. your uh, 
one of your many influences, Oscar Piazzolla. I guess that's possibly why I like accordion, I mean, even though Piazzolla obviously uses bandoneon, which is a smaller and more difficult version of accordion. But I love accordion sound. It gives this edge, and I, and I love soulful melody and harmony. So that's Piazzolla, of course. Um, and there's a swooping, swooping quality that Piazzolla was famous for. You know? Yeah. I know that's not a musicological term, but that's the it's one the, I use. You can run into exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do that in my orchestral piece, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is called Recollecting Asteroids, which is a pun on Astor Piazzolla. Um, yeah. This is a recent piece you composed, a uh, tribute to Piazzolla. Exactly. Well, this piece, Village Idiot, sure goes through a lot of different um, passages and, and moods. It's like a journey yeah. of your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Some person, you know, I remember when I said it's, for me, it's like the slightly disordered thoughts of a person with mental illness. Um, and then they come to some quiet, calm moment. Um, and then some person said, the music is too ordered for that. You know, they uh. found it's too ordered. And I think, well, it is maybe, but it goes into unexpected thing and areas. And for me, just by placing it in 10-8 meter, not a like, f- square time signature, was already getting outside the normal, regular kind mm. of beat. I know it's not chaotic. But some aspects of mental illness include obsessive, repetitive thoughts. Exactly, and that's where I went. And it's exactly what I did say that too, that it's about repetitiveness. You think it should stop, but it doesn't, Mm -hmm. because you want it to stop, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so when the moment comes, it does stop. It's a calm moment. You know, you find resolution, even though the... Schizophrenia is something you can't get rid of. It's not something you completely can cure. But it's just a baby moments where you can rest, you know, from these constant voices in your head. And so here they come back, you see, like they just had a moment of rest, but now the voices come back and they're slightly dissonant a little. Whispers, whispers, murmurs. And they're strange. And there's one moment, I remember they asked me, are you you right? It'll come in a minute. They thought it was wrong notes, but it wasn't. here there was a little discrepancy
This is my favorite part, by the way. The piece comes back with the original material. So now it comes quite minimally back, but the next phrase is the one I love the most. has this sort of melody line over the actual pattern with the trumpet muted. And then it sort of grows bigger. thought of the electric guitar there playing those those very subtle little figures yeah. as being sort of off, a little bit off. Yeah, they're a little bit off. They're kind of twangy. Yeah. And see, what now happens is there's different patterns come together, like the melody and more busy... Mm. material, so it's now much fuller than it was at the beginning of the piece. this piece composed, Village Idiot? Th this was 2007. 2007. And it's part of the story that you told about your son. It's part of your reaching into that world of schizophrenia, yeah? Of, of, of musically grappling with some of these things. Yes, and it's, it's, um, it's a way for me to cope. It's not necessarily a piece about schizophrenia. It's a piece about a person who has schizophrenia, mm -hmm. or it's about a person maybe who I want maybe to hear this piece, maybe. Maybe it won't be that good because maybe it's too busy. Mm -hmm. For a person who has schizophrenia, this piece may be too busy. Oh, it could be upsetting? Or yeah, it could be upsetting because it's so it's so busy because the, the voices in the head are also busy and yeah. it becomes too noisy. But sometimes right. I remember my son wanting to listen to very loud music because he thought that would block out the voices inside the head. Uh -huh. So you just don't know. I mean, what we think is one thing, but... It's unpredictable, right. and, and things change over sometimes course of a minute. Yeah. It's it's so um, poignant too. I mean, you work in a medium where you get many voices to harmonize, you know, to work together perfectly. And schizophrenia is all about this collision of disjoint, disjoint, disjoint voices. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, the worlds can coexist. Yeah. You know, I just have to understand how it works 
what what it means and what anguish my son goes through or, or other people with schizophrenia because there is a lot of people who are sick but I can just let it be my inspiration even if it's such a sad inspiration mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's still inspiration mm -hmm. well you know the human condition is full of sad things and if art doesn't relate to that, then what good is art, you know? Well, this is exactly what I say. I relate to art in a small way, in my person, very, very, very personal way. That's why when people say, what's your responsibility to the world with your music? I say, well, I can only think in a small way and hopefully it makes contribution in some small way. And if somebody hears a piece of music and they say it makes them happy, I think I've achieved a lot, even if it's just one person. It doesn't mm. have to be millions of people, you know? doesn't even have to be hundreds. Just can be one or a couple or friends. If my friends and my family are happy, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this interview has made me happy, Elena. I have to say, I'm sure it will our listeners as well. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been fun to talk to you. Thank you, Robert. Elena Katz-Chernin. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, your host. I'll be back next week. And you can always go to our website to listen to past shows and learn more at 7thAvenueProject.com.